This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Jamaica Kincaid is an acclaimed author and educator. For more than a decade, she's been a professor of African and African-American studies at Harvard University. She's also a passionate gardener and student of the garden in all its lessons. In 1999, a compilation of her essays originally published in The New Yorker magazine, exploring her own life in the garden as a black woman, was published as My Garden Book. It's a seminal work on the vast human narrative offered to us through the knowledge embodied in our modern garden plants and lives. Miss Kincaid is one of the women I featured in my book, The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women at Work in the World of Plants. And in honor of the 4th of July, Miss Kincaid joins me today in conversation. As we enter the conversation, we are remembering the day we were together three months ago on March 13th at the New York Botanical Garden as the world was closing down around us. Welcome. Oh, gosh, how, uh, who knew? I mean, the world at that very moment was changing. We just, our senses were uh, too undeveloped to understand and detect, you know, how, um how it would go. I, 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 I remember that day as if it were both yesterday and a hundred years ago. It's very exciting, you know, um, to see just for a minute, I thought my children would be, uh, in a world of despair, but now I see they're in a world of something yeasty, something really, yeah, something really fermenting and, However, it turns out it's not the same. It kind of reminds me of what you were just saying of your lilies being eaten by the deer again and again and again, and you thought they were gone, and here they are this spring. Here they are, and they, oh gosh, I must remember, I'm trying to write something about uh, the strangeness of the spring, and I must remember to put that in because, uh you know, I just, they, every year they would just be eaten and then they stopped coming back. They just, and I forgot them. And I was just walking over there uh, because Trevor, uh, a young man who helps me in the garden, had cleared away uh, a path around a beauty bush. And um, uh, so I was, we were walking over and I was telling him, take that out, take that out. And then I just, my mouth fell open because I planted about a dozen of the Lilium Superbum and they all disappeared. And lo and behold, there were four of them taller than me already. You know, I just couldn't believe it. And what you said about things uh, uh, on the life of, of plants um, underground uh, is um, amazingly um, true, amazingly true, you know, that they they have this unseen work and, uh, you know, multiplying, strengthening. When you think of how they, uh, the strength that they need to push up, you know, through the earth and through the other roots, wow. Now, anyway. Yeah. It's tenacity. Yeah. It, it, it's incredible. And I think as gardeners, we are both maybe more um, struck by that uh, 
strength or miraculousness or audacity mm. or something. But we also are more likely sometimes to not see it because we're so used to it. We we start to take it for granted too sometimes. Yeah, yeah. We like. I was saying to you know, just in thinking about this, I was saying to myself. I wonder if there's a plant that gets up and decides, oh, I'm just going to commit suicide. <laughs> I can't take this anymore. I'm just going to, this is it. <laughs> but they seem so persistent and just come back and come back. Uh, and uh, when they don't, it's it's not, I have a feeling it's not of their own doing. It's of something we have done that makes mm-hmm. them unable to come back. But they, they are just so, sort of like your little heart, just faithfully beating away until you've done something and it just says, oh. No, one of the things that I really have been wondering is, you know, in this moment, I, you know, you and I first encountered one another because I approached you to be part of this book that I was working on. And I approached you to be part of this book because of your really seminal work around reviewing the history of gardening as we know it in America. And I, you know, this was in the mid-1990s, and you you expressed the concept that the garden brought the world to you, both in good ways and really, really hard, painful ways. And I keep wondering these last few weeks since we last, you know, met in person three months ago now, like what has that, I would first of all love for you to describe what you mean by that, the garden brought the world to me. And then has that shifted? Like, how has that been attenuated these last three weeks, Jamaica? In, uh, entering the garden, the, you know, when I began it the way most people would you plant a little thing here a little tomato a little this a little that um i uh, uh entered it that way and uh for instance just in planting uh the tomato um uh which is such a central part say of italian cooking or italian culture, Italian cook, uh, food culture. But what did Italians do before tomatoes? Because tomatoes are not native to Italy. So um, I would begin like that. It's just a sort of peculiar personality or mind I have. I always wonder where things come from. Um, it's possible that uh, uh, my mind takes that turn because of uh, my own history of being descended uh, from people who don't really know where they come from, except uh, this place called Africa. You know, it's a sort of, uh, um, I mean, when you say an American, you be you say, oh, I'm an American. But you know that that mean, could mean that you come from Wisconsin or Minneapolis or something. Um, but... Uh, I just come from this place called Af- Africa. I don't know where, I don't know anything about it. And so it's quite possible that my interest in where things come from in the garden is rooted in that uh, absence, in, in, um, psychologically, 
it's rooted in that absence. But it is true that the minute I began to dabble in the garden, I wondered where everything came from. Then uh, it's also true that as a child, I was, I had three favorite subjects, uh, things I were excited about, uh, botany, geography, and history. And they all are very central uh, in the garden. I think that that would be, um, you know, the world, really, history, geography, um, uh, botany, in, uh, that's the garden. They, my my uh, feeling about plants, um, I or, or my attachment, I should say, to plants is uh, pretty much... Um, consistent with my growing up. My mother was interested in in plants for all sorts of reasons, not only for cooking, but for medicinal, uh, for instance, uh, in controlling. She used plants as, uh, in her uh, birth methods of birth control. Mm-hmm. Um, me- that medicine, uh, plant medicine is very important for her and her friends. Um, the uh, texture of a vegetable we were eating would be very important to her. And if she liked something she ate, she would seek out the seed and plant it. And we would have, you know, the an association with, uh, uh, with her, um, and what we ate. So uh, all of that, which, you know, these things are not things you are conscious of. They just sort of seep into you and they form you. Um, so anyway, when I started in the, gar- in the garden, I began to um, actively look at, well, what does this mean? Where does it come from? And which, you know, um, things like the tomato, the potato, I wondered what the Irish ate before they had potatoes. Why did they take the potatoes so readily? Was it... Um, did the potato, I mean, this is interesting, did the potato, because they were the first colony of England, uh, did the potato serve the purpose that the breadfruit served for us? The breadfruit was introduced to the Caribbean as a cheap food for slaves. Was the potato the same uh, when it was introduced to the Irish? And um, the way they cultivated it without uh, understanding its um, uh, particular um, growing needs, which led to a blight and a crop failure and famine, you know, because they weren't associated with it for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, it was native to them; it wasn't part of their uh, uh, their culture, you know. And an interesting thing when the Spaniards went to um, uh, South America and met um, people growing amaranth, they banned it and made forced them to grow barley and European crops. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for what reason? I don't know. I can't imagine. Maybe the Andes is uh, great for growing barley. But for a long time, the, the local food was was banned, which, you know, I mean, begins to show you the... Uh, um, exercise of power. I mean, it was banned because you could ban it, you know, and then uh, uh, so these people had to eat wheat and it probably became wheat tolerant. But anyway, 
I would wonder if the, what did the Irish eat before potatoes? And did the potato uh, get introduced to them the way the breadfruit was introduced to us? You know, these are all exercise of domination and power and conquest um, uh, ideas which are very, very uh, current and understandable right this minute. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, so that's what I meant about it. Brought the world to me. Suddenly, I be, I became aware of how things worked, and I began to read uh, more. And the 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 thing people would say, "Oh, you're doing research," but research would seem to me like work. I wasn't working at all. I was just having the most wonderful uh, a time. And then one day, I realized that I had turned my work into a vacation so I could never have a vacation because everything that was a vacation um, was acquiring knowledge yeah. of something. You're following these threads of how different plants were used in this colonial and controlling manner and or colonizing controlling manner. And you also did a lot of research on the naming and, and a lot of thinking and reflecting in your writing on the power of naming, renaming, erasing names. Um, mm-hmm. Will, you, will mm-hmm. you talk a little bit through that? Oh, of course. Um, well, uh, how did I become, uh, I think, I guess maybe it's through Cologne, just observing colonial unraveling that for instance one of the first things a country will do uh, when it declares its independence from uh, the European um, power is to reclaim its name so that Rhodesia is back it goes back to Zimbabwe uh, and so on you see it um, uh, all over Africa um, and then you see it in people, you know, people taking uh, African names. Uh, um, but but the whole uh, thing about naming, you begin to see the power of it. Um, and, and, and my real understanding of these things begin with um, August in 1492, which is when Christopher Columbus left Spain. Uh, and the day he left Spain is the day the Inquisition began. Um, I don't know if they planned it that way, but um, uh, the actual Inquisition and what happened uh, when he left Spain is another form of Inquisition. But never, never mind. Uh, he goes to this place where... He didn't mean to go. He meant to go, though the delusion is just astonishing. Um, He's going to meet the great Khan. Uh, Now, the reason he takes that route is because of the Muslim conquest of uh, um, Constantinople. You used to be able to get out, uh, to go out into the world, uh, through Turkey, um, but because of uh, the Islamic conquest of that uh, part, uh, they decide that the way to go east is to go west um, 
and uh, come around. It, 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 the question is, and this is geography again, the question is flat earth. It still has some validity. <laughs> so he, it was really uh, a fear on, on, on his part that he might fall off the horizon and fall off into nothing. And his men were very much afraid of that. Anyway, they... Uh, sail and sail and finally they see a light and um, they, I think he convinces them that they've reached, or he even convinces himself that they've reached uh, Japan or China. And, um, but the people look a little different. So he might have thought that he was in the outskirts in the country. Um, but one thing that happens, and, and it's very interesting to read his journals because the language changes from time to time. And it's when something important um, is happening, though he doesn't really understand the importance of it. Anyway, uh, one significant thing happens immediately. He hands one of the native people a sword and the person takes it by the blade because he's never seen such a thing before. He doesn't know how to handle it. And Christopher Columbus knows in that moment the game is over. And it's like within... I don't know, three hours of meeting these people that he knows, oh, they don't know how a sword works. And uh, he's completely unfamiliar with this landscape and he can only describe it as green and a paradise and a, uh, actually quite the language uh, that you would use today to describe the, the Caribbean. And um, his actions, which are the actions that... Um, continue in the way the West Indies are regarded. His actions are the action of a pirate. You know, he begins to steal and uh, uh, hide and do tricky things. And he claims things in the, in the name of the king and queen of Spain. But the only uh, way he can claim them is to name them. And the naming is, is legal. Rarely. He doesn't have soldiers to, to guard it, so he names them. Um, he names them after the king and queen of Spain, or after saints, after... I mean, he names things to such an extent, he runs out of names, so by the time he gets to the lesser Antilles, uh, for instance, he came on uh, the island of Dominica on a Sunday, so he names it uh, basically Sunday. I think Dominica is Sunday. Um, Antigua is named after a church in Spain. St. Kitts is named after, is really St. Christopher because for to him, it looked like the uh, image of St. Christopher carrying uh, the baby Jesus across a water. You know, St. Christopher, I think, is a saint of traveling. And um, it's, uh, the legend is that Christopher carried unknowingly uh, cries across a roaring river in the middle of the night. And only when he gets to the other side, he realizes uh, that it's Jesus. And so uh, Christopher Columbus thinks the island looks in silhouette like that. And so that's how it becomes St. Christopher. And it goes on and on, you know, uh, all these names. And um, 
uh, I think the only island that uh, he, I don't know how that's, I don't remember how that's discovered. The only island that he didn't name was Barbados, but Barbados was the first Australia. Uh, to be Barbados was to be sent to prison in Barbados. Um, George Washington inherited, at 11 years of age, he inherited as many slaves as he was in age, and they were in Barbados. <laughs> um, I like knowing things like that. It's just sort of funny. Uh, and then, you know, but that's the way the West Indies first became possessed, um, was through naming. Now, once he had done that, and he made four trips, once he had done that, the other people uh, in Europe came. But those names persisted um, and they became anglicized uh, in some way. I think the only ones that uh, remain native, Cuba is a uh, mispronunciation of the um, Indian or native people name, and Jamaica was Jamaica, I think, uh, and Haiti was Haiti um, by the native people. But mostly the other islands, the names... Um, are what he gave them, but it was a way of possessing uh, um, them, of claiming them. So, uh, and as I say, it 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 took so that, for instance, you know, in a war between England and France, uh, the settlement in the settlement, two islands that used to belong to France became British. But it, they didn't tell the people on on the islands that that this had happened. So those two those people on those two islands have very strong French uh, patois culture, Dominica and Saint Lucia, which became British, but they're very um, uh, much like Guadeloupe and Martinique and even Haiti. And uh, English speaking people in the West Indies have uh, dis a sort of dislike of them because they're not English speaking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the whole thing is um, both funny and tragic and mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. Jamaica Kincaid is an acclaimed writer and thinker with personal and expansive interests in botany, history, and geography. We'll be right back with more of her gardening journey. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So ever since first reading Jamaica Kincaid's Thoughts on the Garden in the early 2000s, I've been struck by the import and consequences of what she notes so incisively. History, geography, and botany. The whole world is there in the garden. The whole world, mine and yours, whoever and just about wherever you may be as a gardener. Looking out my office window onto my small front courtyard garden, maybe 19 feet by 19 feet in a fairly typical Northern California suburb, I'm accompanied in my daily view by a potted Camellia japonica pink pearl, the genus of which is native to China and Japan, but this cultivar, I believe, was selected by Nuccio's, a nursery in Southern California from which my mother, now 22 years past, bought me my first camellias when I lived in Seattle. 
There's also a large Miscanthus sinensis morning light, also native to Asia, and which I first fell in love with in a Colorado garden when I was a young mother to my two girls almost 20 years ago now. It's perfectly positioned to block my view of the driveway and to catch the morning light while I sit here and work. There is a sesame plant in bloom and new to me, but native to India. It was recommended to me by North Carolinan gardener Bree Arthur, and I purchased the seed from Kitazawa Seeds, specializing in Asian vegetable seeds based in San Francisco. I am so thrilled with the seed pods forming and the thought that I might harvest edible sesame seed. There are locally and regionally California native salvias and buckwheats, variously used by, co-evolved with, and sacred to the indigenous peoples of this place, including the Machupta Maidu, on whose unceded land I live and garden. There are iceberg roses bred in Europe in the late 1950s. There are violets and marigolds and many Mediterranean herbs, thyme, mint, marjoram, chamomile, all used medicinally for thousands of years by cultures throughout time. There are tomatoes trying to take advantage of the full southern sun, but struggling in the soil damaged by proximity to a concrete slab foundation. There is a shell from Turks and Caicos purchased on a great family vacation. There is a metal tree of life from Mexico purchased from a nursery and positioned on the wall above a little frog fountain I fashioned out of a cast stone trough gifted to me by my friend Kim, who lives in Minneapolis now. And right beside my front door, there's a well-traveled and much-beloved nine-tile tree-of-life mosaic that I bought as individual tiles wrapped in foreign-language newspaper from a Palestinian artist on the side of the road in Israel back in the 1990s when I was a mid-twenties unmarried woman traveling with my sisters. Currently, a little Pacific chorus frog spends her days sleeping in the shade on the top of this now-framed mosaic, and at night she wanders the courtyard, hunting and eating the noisy night insects. The whole world, my small world and our larger world, wars and thefts, enslavements and displacements, triumphs and losses, lies and laughter, deceptions and fidelities, babies and divorces, layers and cycles, second chances and 55th chances at starting and trying again are all right here out my window. In my conversations with Jamaica Kincaid prior to writing about her in The Earth in Her Hands, she said this, quote, The thing we have liked the most about gardens is the love of a flower from somewhere else. Most people don't know that the marigold and dahlia were part of Montezuma's gardens. If we could just honor one another, maybe it wouldn't feel so badly to have taken them. Honoring one another is one way, perhaps, that we redeem ourselves. I am very interested in redemption, she said to me.
We're back now to our conversation with Antiguan American writer and gardener, Jamaica Kincaid. As we come back, she's sharing with us how she came to be a gardener. Welcome back. Oh, 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 oh yes. Oh, it was, um, as usual, so many things with me begin in uh, my utter ignorance, but I've never let that interfere. <laughs> it was my second Mother's Day, 1986. I was given as a, you know, a kind of joke, because I, in those days, I thought Mother's Day was really a, a joke. I still think it's sort of silly, but anyway, I was given um, these silly cheap tools from a store called Ames and packets of seeds um, and a pair of wonderful earrings, actually. I lost the earrings, but uh, the tools, I went outside and uh, dug up something, put the seeds in the ground and nothing happened. And nothing encourages me more than defeat. So I naturally persisted. I had no idea that it was um, buried in me, this, this desire to be, uh, to see things grow. You know, the origins of it must have caused incredible uh, regret because um, it, <laughs> my children used to make, when they were little, uh, they would make fun of uh, uh, me in the garden. I remember once, um, my husband at the time uh, came in uh, and said to Harold, uh, have you seen my beautiful wife? And Harold said, no, but if you're looking for mom, she's in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> so how old would you have been on this second Mother's Day when you received this, um, you know, sort of joke, but the universe yes. was very serious? Yeah, um, I would have been 36, yeah. And and how long had you been in the United States at that point? Oh, uh, I came in when, I, 20 years, uh, because I came when I was uh, 16, almost 17, and if I was 36, so it was almost 20 years, yeah. yeah. And, and you'd been writing at The New Yorker um, mm -hmm. on staff there for, for many years already yes. when this newest transformation of you started. And yes. tell listeners how you came to write my garden book, because in my mind, it is one of the seeds that is really coming back to life right now. In terms of us being able to see and talk about and be clear about and grasp, we in a very broad sense, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, this idea of this very complicated, sometimes often tragic and brutal history that is in our gardens yeah, starts yeah. for me oh, it starts well, with your work there oh dear that's very kind of you um, well I used to talk about the garden. God, uh, I would talk about the garden all the time, what I was doing. And I had um, uh, uh, my very, very best friend, um, Ian Fraser, And we talk all the time and we about everything. And I was always talking about the garden. And he said, I remember him saying to me, uh, listen, um, 
I'm so tired of listening about this, this garden thing. Why don't you just write about it? And I said, oh, that's such a good idea. And um, I told uh, uh, my editor at The New Yorker then was Veronica Gang, a wonderful, wonderful writer who, who died. Um, and uh, I told her I would like to write about the garden. And um, The New Yorker had just gone through a change and an unpleasant person became the editor. Um, I won't mention her name. Um, and uh, so I told Veronica, you know, I was very interested in writing about the garden. And she said, okay, but just promise me one thing. You won't learn the, na- the Latin names. I hate the Latin names, <laughs> uh, she said. And so I promised. And uh, But of course, I uh, proceeded to learn the Latin names and never told her. I never told her I did. Um, I absolutely love the Latin names. They are so descriptive. And the thing about the Latin names is if you go to another country and you don't speak the language, but if you know the Latin names, you can be in the garden. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it's universal. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, uh, the, the main editor, um, when she heard about the idea, she said, oh, that's wonderful. Um, what's that? Robert, uh, the Australian guy who used to be in, uh, Robert Hughes. Mm. Robert Hughes has a wonderful garden. And I immediately see, could see what their idea of a garden was, that I'd just go to some rich person's garden and talk to them and, you know, write some stupid thing about a garden. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to write about a, the garden, the garden as uh, you know, how it works, and by that, how it really works, beginning with the story in Eden. And um, I think they were just sort of maybe desperate to see how it would work out, and I, it's the first thing I wrote about naming and possessing. By that time, I was, uh, before I wrote about it, I was deep into understanding and curious about the development of the garden, you know, I'd already uh, interpreted the story of the Garden of Eden in this way, that the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, the tree of life is agriculture, the tree of knowledge is horticulture, because I could see that before people Uh, Any civilization uh, gets into the world of gardening, you first have to have enough to eat. It's only when you have a surplus, you have luxury, you have, uh, in fact, a wealthy, that you then expand into the knowledge part. And that's what horticulture is. Agriculture has knowledge, too, of course, you, you know, but it's the, the, uh, the combination of um, aesthetic and uh, curiosity is not as involved in agriculture as it is in the horticultural aspect of the garden or the design of the garden. Jamaica Kincaid is an acclaimed writer, thinker, and gardener, joining us in honour of the 4th of July with all its complexities. We'll be right back with more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud and continuing on this idea, redemption, 
It's an interesting word. Jamaica talks about how we as people can work to honor one another, work to refind and retell and reshare histories which were hidden, stolen, histories that some strove to erase. But they are still there, those histories, embodied in the plants and the seeds and the art and the myth and the lived history of people and places. The word redeem literally means to regain, to reclaim, to recover. In what we plant, what language we use with and in our gardens, we literally reclaim the garden and its history and meaning in a greater fullness, a fullness born of tragedy, evil, beauty, joy. The joy is there too, but it is a truer joy in its context of greater truth. I like to make myself as a gardener truly think about what it means to be a gardener. Jamaica Kincaid wrote about gardens with history and power at their center, because that is in fact what is at their center. In honor of the 4th of July in 2018, we spoke here with artist-activist Nikisha Durrett, whose sculptural exhibit at the U.S. Botanic Garden, based on the cotton plant, explored the complicated history of this plant for her as a Black woman. For the 4th of July 2019, we were joined by Robin Wall Kimmerer and her thoughts on being a citizen of this world and a gardener with it from an indigenous, reciprocal, ecological knowledge and relationship perspective. And here in this conversation with Jamaica Kincaid, towards the end of our conversation, she notes that for her, the greatest thing we as gardener citizens can do is to be kind. And many of you will remember, I think, that poet Ross Gay glossed for us the relationship between the word kind and the word kin. In this way, we are never citizens of one country. We are, in fact, family within the world. And in this way, perhaps, we ourselves, and even our very small gardens, are the living cover crops we ourselves need to reclaim and reseed and redeem that with which we want to grow forward. We're back now with writer and gardener Jamaica Kincaid, sharing with us more on her early critical analyses of the garden as a cultural symbol. Welcome back. And the other thing I began to understand, the Garden of Eden story is very important in my exploration uh, of the garden. You know, the uh, I began to understand about the divisions of the garden, the separating of the four rivers, you know, the rivers dividing the garden into quarters. The quadrilineal design is the eternal design of the garden. And I was just bowled over by that, of that insight. All of that I began to put into the things I was writing in The New Yorker. And uh, much to my surprise, they were welcomed and published. Uh, I 
I think that there must have been so much going on that no one noticed I was doing um, these things. And, you know, eventually um, I came to part with The New Yorker over something I found repulsive, but we won't go into that. But, yeah, when I uh, began writing about it, and uh, you know, it wasn't about people's beautiful uh, garden. I would visit a lot of beautiful gardens, but I was interested in how they came about. You know, I once went to, uh, when I was in England, I took part of a tour um, that Adams and Jefferson took when they were in England uh, together. Adams was the ambassador to Great Britain and Jefferson was going to Paris and they took a, they went on a, uh, a tour of gardens and I wanted to see what they saw. So, just things. It was a very exciting time for me. Um, at the same time, I was married and had two children, and I think they often felt really annoyed at me that I was so uh, preoccupied. Uh, for me, the garden is a delight, but for me, the, the, the truth is a delight, no matter how disturbing. I I love to know what really happened. And, uh, you know, I think if you can't, admit that you really did this horrible thing, then you shouldn't have done it. So this is another guiding principle I have from the garden. If you can't admit that you've done this thing, don't do it. If you think that in the future, you know, uh, you'll have to say, oh, no, I didn't um, destroy the lives of millions of people. Uh, if you can't say you did it, then don't do it. So this this kind of brings me to a, a little bit to this moment we find ourselves in now, where there is this mm-hmm. cascade of mm-hmm. uh, of awareness and awakening that uh, yes. that we, you know, and I'm and I'm, that people are saying I right. did it. Two people are yeah. saying yeah, and I'm they're so, seeing. I'm so we touched. are seeing it. You yeah. know, I, I should say yeah. and yeah. the yeah. So so here's an interesting question for you and and you may not I don't know mm-hmm. you will probably have thoughts on it but you know in this where we started or one of the ways we started with this idea of naming mm-hmm. of things and 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 that mm-hmm. when there is a uh, a re- return to maybe um a more rightful or more um visible truth then there is often renaming and uh-huh. You know, we we're talking about these Latin names. We're talking about you know, the removal of statues, the renaming of bases, and yeah, I think about the names of our plants, and I I've really been, I've been putting my head around this in a whole new way because I I got it when yes. you when you first showed it to me in the 1990s. I got it. But I didn't go to the next place of what do I do about it? And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's these, the, the, this idea of, of how do we reclaim and move forward in a more, um, in a more positive and just Yes, yes, way, just way. way. You know, do we yeah. uh, do we rename the dahlia back to what it was? Do we learn that name too? Do we, you know, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I'd love your thoughts on that. I would take the view, though my son was more radical. It's just amazing to see this these young people more radical than me. Um, I would 
uh, take the view that there would be something uh, more more important before I rename the Dahlia. It's not going to bring back um, Montezuma uh, renaming um, the Dahlia. And uh, so I would get to something else. But I also would say that the um, classification of plants, if only it had been kept to classification of plants and not had been then uh, continued into classification of people, um, which is uh, one of the horrible things that Linnaeus's uh, classification uh, led to. And he himself was quite a racist, but weren't they all? Um, that I, uh, the naming um, uh, of plants is, I think, a big help and a big uh, contribution to clarification. It's too bad that he named the Zutitol, which is the Dahlia, after um, Andres Dahl, who was one of Linnaeus's students. That's too bad. Um, and I wouldn't object to uh, renaming the Dahlia. I mean, they're renaming all sorts of things, actually, because they're finding that things are... Uh, not in this family, the chrysanthemum isn't the chrysanthemum any, anymore, or some of them aren't. So I, I wouldn't object to it, uh, but it's not something I, um, I'm going to work, waste my time over. Um, you know, uh, there are more um, important uh, things to me. But it is true that, um, of course, uh, the Confederate monuments give, they, they were not established for, for clarification. They were established to perpetuate uh, injustice and, and cruelty and um, uncivic civic behavior. I was always very grateful that I didn't go to England when I was a teenager and came to America because I could never have been the person uh, I became um, I am in in a place like like England. Also, very grateful that I came to America at just that time because um, uh, had I come ten years earlier, uh, I don't think I would have ended up at at the New Yorker. Um, I don't know. My story is so peculiar because I'm so peculiar. I do think that you know the at least to acknowledge the uh, destruction yeah. uh, that the British Empire uh, uh, perpetrated on people. I was just reading something by an Englishman that said um, uh, England had never been a nation. It had, it's an island, and what it, uh, its glorious past really depends not on England so much as on the empire. Uh, so the, in, that the English identity really is based on the, their association, their cruel association with other people. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine yeah. that. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really true. Queen Elizabeth knighted, I believe it's John Hood, 
um, for introducing a new trade to England, Queen Elizabeth I, and, this, and the new trade was the slave trade, and he was knighted, and his coat of arms was of an African kneeling in chains. That was his oh, no. coat of arms, you know, yeah. And then uh, I lived in a neighborhood that was named after English admirals, and the street after mine was Hood mm. Street. So, yeah. Uh, you know, or the, you know, the, well, a big part of my eating was the breadfruit, but the breadfruit was introduced to the West Indies from uh, Hawaii, uh, from uh, the um, Pacific Islands uh, as a che cheap source of food for slaves because the poor slaves would take time out from their labors to grow something to eat. You know, so to go back to the relationship uh, I find between um, the vegetable kingdom and cruelty. But I should tell you that, you know, at this moment, for instance, I have outside my uh, little patch of, I grow cotton every year. It never uh, produces cotton because it's in Vermont and the season is too short. But I grow it because the flowers are beautiful and um I like to redeem yeah. plants from their cruelty. So um, one of the things I did was um, I planted over 10,000 daffodils on my lawn. And when they bloom, uh, I recite words, words, I wandered lonely as a cloud. Uh, because we were made to memorize that as school children in, uh, all across the empire. And most of us in the empire would never have seen a daffodil. And so I used to hate daffodils. But then one day I decided it wasn't Wordsworth's fault. And so I redeemed the daffodil. So I like to go around redeeming things from their horrible yeah, association. Yeah. And, you know, you when, I, when you and I, over our, you know, brief association these last couple of years... Um, in terms of redemption and the garden, I, I would love to kind of bring us back around as you just did to your garden and what, it, what it means to you today and how you interface with it, um, from all your different facets that you've already brought up as a, as a black woman, as a professor of African and African American studies at Harvard, as a, a mother and a fiction writer, where does your garden sit for you, Jamaica? Oh, at the moment, it uh, dominates everything. I should be preparing to teach, but instead I am, <laughs> uh, oh, I'll tell you, I, I planted, um, there's a rose souvenir de President Lincoln. It's the President Abraham Lincoln, and I'm hoping it will have many blooms by Juneteenth, so it's things like that. I run around. I should be doing, you know, I really should be doing something else, but I just run around hoping to have all sorts of pleasures in, in the garden. But they're, they're, they're strange uh, pleasures. I mean, I don't know if there's a, that's the right word for them because they, um, they are complicated. They're wrapped up in things that you don't usually... Uh, uh, associate with pleasure. I mean, the emancipation and the murder uh, uh, of President Lincoln, which I then concentrate in a rose. What pleasure is that? But it is a pleasure for me. So, 
um, that's where it all, the garden is center right now. My children are grown up and quite annoyed with me still for the garden. But uh, <laughs> So then I have one more question. Mm-hmm. As given everything that you attribute to the garden in terms of your intellectual growth, your personal mental health and curiosity and passion does this does does the garden and botany and plants and this side of our our lives as gardeners come up for you in your teaching as a professor uh, with your students yeah 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 i actually teach a, a a course in in the on the garden which um seen my students really loved it they um I've taught it a couple of times and it seems uh, very popular with them um, because they had never really thought of the garden. The garden is a metaphor, I should say. It's so interesting because it's so many layered and they never thought of it as um, an area of conquest. Though if you think of the original story, it's the incredible um, template for conquest. You know, the naming of things, the sharing, uh, the way God tells Adam, you name these things. Well, of course, God already knows the names of everything, but it was his way of sharing or her way of sharing with Adam the power of possession. You know, so when you point that out and then you go on to the many ways, you know, the dynamic of domination and love, and you know, uh, it's all in the garden, really. Another great thing the garden gave to me was an interest in mountaineering literature because a lot of mountaineers uh, were plant collectors. <laughs> so they, they yeah, um, I mean, I, I just am so grateful to the garden. I should start worshipping it. For me, being in and of the garden world, gardeners and the garden have a role to play in the redemption we need to see in our world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, the, uh, well, the beneficence of a plant, the generosity that is in a plant, you know, and the love you can, they do really speak these things, um, these beings. They do really, they respond, you know, the, the yeah, it's, um, it is, an, it is, it does have a wonderful place uh, in our lives and not, you know, not the constant destruction and manipulation of genetics of, in plants and making something double. But, you know, I have a wonderful rose growing growing outside, um, Rosa Blanda. It's an, uh, an American native rose, and it is so beautiful, a lovely pink rose, and it just places itself all over the garden in the most unexpected places. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, that's wonderful. Is there anything you would like to add in terms of um, just any of, this, any of this conversation before we, we sign off? Jamaica? Oh, I can't think of anything. I think I've taken you all over the world in my ramblings, um, which is uh, uh, the way my garden looks. My garden is a collection of ramblings of plants. And um, 
I'm reminded of the world in that way. Complications, contradictions, uh, yeah, sadness, sorrows, and joys. Yes. Yes. I am going to air this episode on July 2nd in oh. honor of uh, July 4th. Yes. If you had to say anything about what it means to you to be a gardener citizen, I think you've actually said a great deal of it, but I didn't ask that specifically. So maybe there were other things that would come up about the the importance of those two words together. Gardener citizen, um, be kind. Be kind. Uh, apart from that, every... On 4th of July, I go for a walk to Robert Frost's house because on the road there uh, in the high meadow is a colony of um, Lilium philadelphicum. And uh, so that's what I do. Lilium philadelphicum. Thank you so much for the conversation today. And um, thank you. I can't wait to hear how your new lilies do in the garden this year I will tell you I will tell you I promise <laughs> all right all right Jamaica Kincaid is an acclaimed writer and for more than a decade a professor of African and African American studies at Harvard University a passionate and critically thinking gardener and student of the garden in all its lessons. Her My Garden Book, published in 1999, is a seminal work on the complex human narrative offered to us through the history embodied in our modern garden plants and lives. Miss Kincaid is one of the women featured in The Earth in Her Hands, 75 extraordinary women at work in the world of plants. Join us again next week when we catch up with British-based Californian Catherine A. Alto, a historian, designer, and writer whose most recent book, Writing Wild, Women Poets, Ramblers, and Mavericks, offers all of us some much-needed outdoor adventure with some admirable women of words. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio, now also heard weekly on KWMR in Point Reyes Station on California's northern coast. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, check out the many images of Jamaica Kincaid and her Vermont garden. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.